Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to psychologist and author Daniel Goleman about emotional intelligence. So there is an old adage, never meet your heroes. And I can vouch for the fact that in many cases that is true. Today, it is going to be disproved because my guest, who is a bit of a hero of mine on account of some of the books he's written, is going to surpass expectations. Of that, I have no doubt. Daniel Goleman, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm here, Simon, and uh, let's lower expectations <laughs> right at the outset. Uh, no chance. <laughs> Daniel Goleman, you are one of the world's most prolific psychologists, but you're also a prolific author. And one of your books had a profound impact on me. It was called Emotional Intelligence. Uh, I read it about 11 years ago. And like I said, it really did leave a lasting impression. It was a groundbreaking book in many ways. Some 5 million copies sold, untold weeks on bestseller lists, really brought the words emotional intelligence into, into the public lexicon. 
So we're going to talk about some of the lessons from that, but as well, we're going to talk about another of your more recent books. It's called Altered Traits, which is a huge scientific deep dive, really rigorous deep dive into the benefits of meditation. Well, yes. And in the UK, it's called The Science of Meditation. Same book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really a lifelong interest of mine, meditation. I've been doing it forever. And I wanted, you know, when I was at Harvard as a graduate student, I tried to do research on it. They thought it was a terrible idea then. Now, of course, there are more than 6,000 journal articles about it. So the book boils it down to, okay, what's the bottom line here? So I I think it's important to establish what emotional intelligence is. The first starting point has to be to differentiate it from IQ, which basically could be summed up, I guess, as how brainy you are. Well, uh, you know, if, if you're going to say IQ is how brainy you are, I'd say emotional intelligence is how likable you are, because there are a lot of people who are brainy who you don't want to be with. Agreed. Now, I've seen that you've broken emotional intelligence down into five areas. So can you just explain what they are? Their self-awareness, which is uh, knowing what you're feeling and how your emotions are impacting your performance right now, for better or for worse, for example. The second is self-management. Uh, I used to say there was a third motivation. I folded it into self-management because that's how you manage your emotions, how you manage yourself, your thoughts, everything that impacts what you're doing. The third is empathy, how you can recognize emotions in other people. You know what the other person is feeling without their telling you in words because they don't. They tell you in tone of voice and how they're reacting to you and so on. And then the fourth is putting that all together to have effective relationships. Uh, And that's everything from being a good teammate or a leader to being able to persuade and influence people. Now, you've come up with some great quotes in your time, Daniel, one of my favorites of which is, and I will read it, if your emotional abilities aren't in hand, if you don't have self-awareness, if you're not able to manage your distressing emotions, if you can't have empathy and effective relationships, then no matter how smart you are, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I just saw data so relevant to that. Engineers, very brainy people. They're asked to rate how successful as engineers other people they work with are. And then those ratings are compared with IQ, zero relationship, and with emotional intelligence, very high correlation. And this is engineers rating other engineers. Quick tangent just on that. Do you think engineers or the engineering professions tend to attract people more on an IQ basis than on an emotional intelligence basis? Absolutely. I think all of those kind of STEM uh, professions, science, tech, engineering, math, uh, are IQ uh, strong. However, this is the irony. And this is something I'll never tell you in school. (laughs) You know, you go to school for STEM, and then once you're in the field, everybody's as smart as you are. That's not going to distinguish whether you're someone people want to work with, whether you're a great team member, or whether you're a leader. Those have to do with your emotional intelligence. Yeah, and another quote I've got here, out of control emotions make smart people stupid. (laughs) You've seen it all the time, (laughs) particularly in sports, actually. I mean, if someone loses it on the field, they're going to lose the game. Sure, and we'll get into that. Just quickly, let's break down those elements. So self-awareness, this is just about recognizing emotions. And it got me thinking because 
in my life, I've tried to go through periods where I've tried to label emotions. And it's not actually that easy often at times. Certainly, I mean, I don't tend to do it much now, but back in the day when I did, I would often get caught out and I might leave the house and think that, you know, I was in a fine mood and it was only when something happened, I realized actually I was irritable. So being able to spot your emotions isn't perhaps as easy as one might imagine. Yet in something like sport, to recognize the feelings you have, whether you're emotional or uh, anxious or whatever it may be, can be crucial. Well, think about it. You know, the people who are, are uh, likely to win the game are the ones who feel energized, enthused, you know, positive energy. The people who are likely to blow it, even if they're ahead, are the ones who, let, who get enraged or, you know, or, or get scared or get anxious. It's important to recognize debilitating emotions, particularly in the thick of a match, because those are the ones, those are the ones that are going to throw you off your game. Okay, and that leads us into self-regulation, which is managing your emotions. And the essence of this is that um, you know experiencing any particular emotion is okay. In fact, it's important, but only some reactions are. So we we want to be able to experience whatever emotion is there, not suppress it, not try and get rid of it, but at the same time, be in control of how we react to it. You know, let me start with kids and we'll get to sports. Uh, it, there's a program called Social Emotional Learning, which takes emotional intelligence and uh, puts it in a curriculum so that kids will learn it, you know, before they go to university. They start in kindergarten. And there, one of the things they use is a stoplight. It says, whenever you're upset, remember the traffic light. Red light, stop, calm down, and think before you act. This is such an important lesson because you can't, you don't determine what you're going to feel or when you're going to feel it or how strongly. Your choice point is between the feeling and the impulse it gives you and the actual reaction. There's a definition of maturity, which is widening that gap. And when you think about it in sport, do you remember the prize fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield? Oh, of course I yeah. do. Because <laughs> Tyson lost it. He took a bite out of Holyfield's ear right. and he was immediately disqualified. It cost him a $3 million fine and a year out of boxing. Yeah. Tyson later said, you know, I need emotional intelligence. He recognized it. When he calmed down, he could see it. But in the moment, that's when you need to manage your emotions, uh, particularly the ones that are upsetting you. And I think every athlete knows that. Okay. So managing your own emotions, not losing it completely when you're feeling frustrated, not running away in the middle of an anxiety attack necessarily, whatever it may be. Well, here's the interesting thing. You said, you know, name your emotion. Uh, you know, that's okay as an exercise to strengthen the brain's capacity to do that during an actual sporting match. You know, you only want to name the ones that are, th you know, I'm starting to get really upset with this guy. or Because this is interesting from a brain point of view. The minute you name the emotion, I'm starting to get angry, you change the ratio of activation in the emotional centers that are giving you the feeling. And the prefrontal cortex, which is the brain's executive center, which manages those same feelings. So you're shifting toward the part of the brain that can handle the emotion. You're starting to short circuit that uh, attack that you're having, whatever it might be, it might be rage. 
That's really interesting. So just by naming the emotions, specifically negative emotions, that you can create that gap that actually allows you to have a bit more control over the reaction and, and reduce them in the moment. Exactly. In fact, you're creating the potential to keep going and to actually uh, not let it take you over. Because if you do, you're going to be Mike Tyson biting off Hollyfield's ear. You're going to do something that is going to blow it for yourself plus your team. So moving into the last two, one of which is empathy, which is the degree to which we can read and understand other people's emotions. Is that right? Well, yes. And think about it, you know, on a team, you want uh, team members to be very connected throughout the whole, you know, uh, match. And uh, it won't happen if they're not tuning into each other. That's what empathy is, is tuning into the person with you. There are three kinds of empathy, by the way. Cognitive empathy, I know how that person's seeing things and thinking about it. Emotional empathy, I know what they're feeling. And then uh, what's called empathic concern, which is, uh, you know, I care about that person. And the tightest teams, the best functioning teams, everyone cares about everyone else. That's not that third kind. Yeah, absolutely. And every team goes through difficult moments. And it, it got me thinking about James Kerr, who I interviewed Uh, about the book Legacy, who spent a lot of time with the New Zealand All Blacks, who are the most successful rugby team on the planet. They have spent more time as the world's top-ranked team, I think, than the rest of the world combined. They've never been lower than two, from what I know. And a lot of their success is down to culture. So it's based on humility, respect for each other, And that really feeds into what you're talking about. It's emotional intelligence, but also empathy, which has allowed them to go on and be as successful amongst other things, amongst other reasons, of course, but allowed them to go on and be as successful as they have been. Yeah. So they're cultivating an attitude where they're tuned into each other, where they trust each other, where they respect each other. And I think that lets them coordinate beautifully on the field. The more connected you are, let me put it differently, the more disconnected you are, the worse your performance is going to be as a team. Okay, so social skills and relationships, which ties in with the empathy that you're talking about. It builds on empathy. You know, are are you connected? Can you uh, impact each other in a good way? Can you help each other succeed? Uh, All of that has to do with things like uh, influence and persuasion and managing conflict. I mean, if if there's something that's uh, not being said but is keeping two players apart, you want to surface it and handle it in a way that they both feel like, okay, I can live with that. Uh, And then things like uh, inspiring each other. You want to get the best out of everyone. You want everyone to be in the optimal state, with a state where they can perform at their best and to be most connected. And you do that by motivating people, by feeling inspired as a group. So, Daniel, here in England, the current England manager, Gareth Southgate, a few years ago, he took England to the Football World Cup semi-finals for the first time since 1990. This was without having come in as this big name managerial signing. But he got a lot of credit for his emotional intelligence, for the warmth and trust that he, along with uh, people like Pippa Grange as well, were able to foster and create within their squad within their team and that then translated into results on the pitch so i mean it literally can be uh, a road to success in that way you know i i had a very similar uh, feedback from 
in the States were crazy about basketball. I don't know if you pay attention. Of course, yeah. 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 And uh, there's a, a, a team, the Golden State Warriors, that keep winning and winning and winning like the champs. They started when a guy named Steve Kerr became their coach. And uh, the amazing thing was that Steve Kerr's team won the national championship the first year he took over the team. And I got a call from a guy in that organization said, you know why? It's because Steve Kerr is the most intelligent. And I think that's really important to understand is that these abilities, this sense of connection, this sense of camaraderie, uh, there's a ripple effect from the top down. And if the coach at the top doesn't have it, then it's going to, then the sub coaches won't have it. You know, it's not going to work. But if the head of the team is exemplifying it, modeling it, then you're going to see it throughout. And this is true, and not just in sport. So, you know, you think of people, I can think of my own examples of bosses, of, of team leaders who have been warm, who've been kind, who've been caring, who've had a genuine interest in the people that work under them. And that trickles down, that attitude and that atmosphere trickles down. And the converse is true. When you have someone who doesn't care, it, it tends to create an atmosphere underneath it. It's, it's stems from the head, as it were. So this is not just applicable to sport at all. Yeah, I'll tell you an amazing example. They've got data on this. The Pacific Fleet, the American Navy in the Pacific, has commands. Commands are a ship. And the captain of the ship uh, is a, was evaluated in this study. And then the ships are objectively scored on how well they perform. And it turned out if the head of a ship was emotionally intelligent, was warm, connected, you, you know, available, uh, the ship was very high performing. And so, by the way, was you can see the ripple effect because it was at every level in the chain of command on down. And then the opposite was true. If the leader was aloof, cold, so on, the, it, it was bad performing. And everyone on down was that because, Simon, this is what success looks like here when you see the leader. So this now leads us on to the key question, which is how does one develop emotional intelligence? And this is the beauty of emotional intelligence, because unlike IQ, emotional intelligence is a skill that can be developed. So you work on it, you can develop it and you can get better at it and you can see more real life world results. IQ, it's pretty much you're pretty much stuck with it from from birth largely. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes, and we've got lots of data on that. But you need to have a systematic approach. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it has to do with what's called smart practice. There's this yeah. uh, uh, myth of 10,000 hours that you become a master of your domain, whatever it is, if you practice 10,000 hours. Actually, that is a total mistake. It depends on what you're trying to master. In, ma- uh, in memory, you can, uh, like a waiter in three or 400 hours, will be able to remember, you know, 20 orders without taking a note. And, but on the other hand, if, if it's a domain like sports or performance of any kind, you never reach the top. You never reach the end of where you could still improve. Every champion has a coach in any sport. And the reason is the coach can watch your game and your performance and say, that was great, that was great, and here's something you can do better. That's called smart practice, where you get mm-hmm. feedback from someone who's highly knowledgeable in that domain, in that sport, and then you practice the thing that's going to help you get just a little bit better. Yeah, so that's deliberate practice. Uh, and that makes total sense because if you're practicing, doesn't matter for how long, but practicing badly, surely you're only going to be embedding bad habits. Yeah, what, what Anderson uh, Erickson found was that amateurs practice about 50 hours. They get good enough and they plateau. Uh-huh. They don't keep working at it. But wow. professionals keep going. They never stop learning. Yeah, sure. So when it comes to emotional intelligence and specifically things like self-awareness and self-regulation, I'm interested where or how this relates to mindfulness meditation and the work you've done there. And I know in your book you talk about the three levels. So there's beginners, people who just into it through to pretty much hardcore daily meditators perhaps they go on retreats as well once or twice a year or did through to yogis who are absolutely world-class the amount of time they've put into meditation is staggering really can you just explain what this type of meditation can or how it can benefit and help you develop emotional intelligence sure let me by the way point out that those three levels reflect the number of lifetime hours of practice you put in uh, the beginners are up to 100 hours. The long-term, as we call them, are 1,000 to 10,000 hours. But the yogis go up to 62,000 hours. I mean, these are total hardcore professionals. And you see the difference in their brain. And what you're doing when you do mindfulness or you do any kind of mental training like that, and we see meditation as a mental training exercise, is you're rewiring the brain the circuits that you practice over and over get thicker and thicker and more and more connected you get better at it with mindfulness you see two very important benefits right at the get-go and that is people's attention gets more focused i've seen data that suggests the more concentrated an athlete the better their performance will be in the coming season 
So this, the benefit for sports is absolutely 100%. You want to be totally immersed in what's going on in the game right now, not distracted you know, what's happening in the stands. The second thing is you get calmer. It manages the part of the brain, the amygdala, which is a structure in the emotional centers that triggers that anger, that triggers that fear. It gets the, the uh, circuitry that gets stronger is the circuitry that manages the amygdala and tells it, no, we're not going to flip out now. We've got work to do. We're going to stay calm. And calm and clear is the best state for optimal performance of any kind. Yeah, sure. So as a tennis fan, I always imagine serving for the Wimbledon title. You need to try and well, you want to be calm. You want to be relaxed. But uh, just the thought of it for me sends me into palpitations. But this is the difference between what we call an altered state and an altered trait. It's great if you're calm while you're, you know, doing mindfulness. When you need it, it's like Federer, you know, when you're about to serve or receive a serve. And that is the altered trait. That's a lasting change in the brain that reflects in performance. And it means that you've, you've strengthened the circuitry so that it's there when you need it. You can call on it when the going gets tough, when you're, I don't know, other people would be anxious as anything, but you stay calm. Now, I've already mentioned the lofty circles in which you spend some time, uh, Daniel. Uh, another guy that you're close to who I'm a huge fan of is John Kabat-Zinn, who in many ways has done more to popularize meditation than anyone in the West. Um, he came up with the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course, uh, an eight-week class. I've actually done it myself, had a, a profound impact on me. And what I find interesting about meditation, so a lot of people think about the um, altered states, so getting in there, clearing your mind, that kind of thing. But actually, the beauty of, of that course, what it really taught me was it was about the altered traits. So what that what I mean by that is I would notice that I had a bit more of a gap between stimulus and response. So if I felt frustrated, rather than just lashing out, I might be able to control myself a little better. My concentration improved, my focus improved, my patience improved, my sleep improved. There were so many of these altered traits that really did make a noticeable difference in my life. And I'm interested to what degree they're going to help me when I get back on the tennis court, which isn't going to be for a while yet because I've got a bit of a, a gammy knee. But when I do, I'm confident that will help me in, in tight situations, break points down in a deciding set. I think it will. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your report when you get back on that tennis court. <laughs> it, but I've known John Kabat-Zinn actually since before he developed what we call MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And uh, it's the most well-researched kind of mindfulness. One reason is uh, that there are now teachers all around the world who have been trained by him or by people who he trained. And one thing you may not know is that he's worked with um, crews. Uh, competitive crews. Uh, he started with a Harvard crew and then the U.S. Olympic crew. And he'd have them, before they got in the shell, they'd sit, they'd stand in a circle and hold hands and be mindful together, which means they're synchronizing their breath, wow. which made it easier when they then got into the shell to synchronize the rowing, which is key to high wow. performance in that sport. And uh, do you know what? I, when it comes to mindfulness, someone who sticks out for me is uh, Phil Jackson, the most successful um, basketball coach in American history, 
what was he, 11 rings, 11 titles. He's won with the likes of Shaquille O'Neal, Michael Jordan. Um, and a big part of his uh, approach was actually introducing some of these principles. So mindfulness meditation into the teams he worked with. And look what happened. Exactly. And I, I think it's because, I, I mean, I would say it's because of that calm clarity. Yeah. And it makes them able to be at their best. It's interesting because I always think America's slightly ahead of the curve when it comes to these type of things than Britain. And there hasn't yet been a, a coach of Phil Jackson's stature come out and say, you know, how important meditation, mindfulness is or, or to quite the same degree. Um, yet clearly these type of tools, if you like, if you want to call them that, can have a profound impact on a team's chance of success. Well, actually, I don't know if you're aware of this. There's an epidemic of mindfulness in America now. It's in corporations, it's in sports teams, it's in schools. Uh, and I think it's largely because of John Kabat-Zinn and the research, the findings on his research. I can remember decades ago trying to persuade him to do research and now he's outdone everyone else. Wow. And we'll get on to some of the research soon. But just another quick quote from another basketball coach, uh, George Mumford, who spoke about flow, which is that experience of being completely engrossed in the moment, which often happens in sport with music, can happen in, in a number of different arenas. And he had a lovely quote, which he said, characteristic of it was, there's no you, there's no self-consciousness in the experience of flow. And that really resonated with me. And meditation is, is one way of cultivating that flow. Absolutely. I, you know, the re research on flow originally was at University of Chicago. And I think it's ingenious how they discovered it. They asked people in all kinds of callings, like, you know, athletes and ballerinas and chess players and surgeons to describe a time they outdid themselves, that the performance was surprising even to them. And they found it was internally they're describing the same state, just as you say. It's, you're 120% focused. Your concentration is unbreakable. Everything feels very easy, no matter how big or, uh, or how surprising the challenge becomes. And just like George Mumford says, there's no you there. You're just immersed in the activity. And by the way, it feels great. And your performance is better than ever. That's the thing about flow. It's an equation for optimal performance. And that's why you want to be in it yourself. And that's why you're, any sports team or anyone competing in athletes in athletics wants to be in a flow state because that's where you're going to win. You spoke as well about the benefit of meditation on getting some control or at least calming down your amygdala, which is the alarm system, if you like, in your brain. And this got me thinking about, about choking. So the opposite of flow in many ways. So when you're in flow, completely lacking in self-consciousness, when you're choking, you are very aware of yourself too much. So you get in your own way, the game fall, your game falls apart, you overthink things. Uh, you see it so often in, in sport, people get scarred, by, scarred for life by experiences around choking but mindfulness meditation can help. Exactly. So I call that an amygdala hijack, and that's one of the forms it takes, is that uh, there's something that you have to do, and you can't do it because your brain is going nuts. That's your amygdala, which is the brain's radar for threat. 
which can take over the rest of your brain if it thinks there's a th real threat. Uh, that means you're in the grip of the amygdala. The other way it shows up is outbursts, people uh, you know, losing control, like that Mike Tyson event with the ear. Uh, and so, yes, so the more you can manage your amygdala, the less likely you are to choke. Absolutely, Simon. So you're saying that meditation can literally reduce the reactivity of the amygdala and its resulting impact on the surrounding systems in your brain. Well, it's because, yes, and it's because uh, mindfulness or concentration or bringing your mind back every time it wanders to a central focus does two things, and it uses the same circuitry in the brain. It enhances your ability to concentrate, and it also, by the way, that same circuitry is what inhibits the amygdala because the two are inversely related. The more your amygdala has you in its grip, the less you can concentrate on what you need to, which is why the brain uses the same circuit. And meditation or mindfulness strengthens that very circuitry. So you're less and less likely to, uh, you know, have that freeze happen when you need to act or have that outburst happen because that circuit has gotten stronger. So we've spoken about some of the research in your book, uh, The Science of Meditation, Altered Traits. Is there any of the research we haven't covered that it is worth just bringing into people's consciousness? Yes. Well, I worked with another friend of mine who actually knows John Kabat-Zinn from ancient days too, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin. And he and his team weeded through those 6,000 articles in journals on meditation, found the 60 best. And there were several different kinds of effects we found. Uh, I named two, better concentration, uh, more calm, you're better able to manage those moments when you'd freeze or freak out. Uh, and the third, this is interesting, uh, you care more about other people, particularly if you do a meditation which aims to cultivate that. And then some real surprises. It turns out that if you're one of those long-term meditators, uh, if you meditate for a day, you technically we'd call it down-regulate inflammatory genes. That means the genes in your body that create inflammation, which is underlying diabetes and arthritis and asthma and you name it, those genes go quiet. That was a shock. Nobody thought that a mental exercise could have a genetic effect like that, or epigenetics it calls it, but it does. That's amazing. Um, now, um, I was listening to you on another podcast, Daniel, with Sam Harris, and you came out with another cracking quote, which really stuck with me, which was that you said that um, practicing mindfulness meditation your wife says, has made you nicer. <laughs> yes, and I think that's, oh, you know, what I'm getting at there is that we have a lot of blind spots. We don't know what our strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, the, it was Robert Burns who said, oh, that the gods, the gift would give us to see ourselves as others see us. That's what I'm talking about. You need the view from people who know you well. But any, you know, there's something called a 360 degree assessment widely used in business where uh, people who want to develop more leadership abilities will ask people who know them well, who they trust and whose opinions they respect to evaluate them on those uh, emotional intelligence abilities broken down into behaviors like being a good listener, so on. Evaluate them anonymously. 
so that people can be very frank and honest with you and you get the data aggregated. It gives you a sense of your strengths, your weaknesses, where your limitations are and where you can put effort in. Uh, I think it's a wonderful tool. And of course, you could just ask your wife. So we, we've talked a lot about mindfulness meditation, but what, what other ways can people spend time working to improve their emotional intelligence? Actually, you know, I've just started a coaching program for this very reason. We, uh, I, I feel that just as in sports, you need someone who's an expert in that domain, in that sport, to help you along. I think the same is true with emotional intelligence. You need someone who's skilled at it, who can look at you. As I said, you need that good assessment of, uh, you know, a profile. Where, I'm, where are my strengths? Where are my limitations? Where can I grow? And now how can I do it? And you want someone who's going to support you through that process, which is why I've started to now train coaches in this. And we've, we've developed some learning paths that any, any organization can use that uh, will help that. But we facilitate those. And the reason is that just as in sports, you're, you're going a little blind. You know, how do I increase my ability to persuade or to influence or to empathize or to manage my, uh, you know, my upsetting emotions? You want someone who's been there, who's done it, who's helped other people through it. And so there are five steps. Uh, one is to ask yourself, do I care? Because if you don't really care, you can stop right there. It's going to take some time and some effort. Uh, the second step is to get someone to support you through the process, like a coach or a learning partner, whoever it may be. The third is get that accurate diagnosis. Uh, you know, a 360, as I said, that, where people whose opinions you trust, who know you, tell you anonymously where they see you're, you're, you're being really good and where you're needing help. And then get a learning plan. Think about one thing you're going to do. Like, oh, I'll get it. I'll become a better listener, for example. Well, that means you've got to overcome what's the brain's default response now, which is interrupting people, and then making the effort, being mindful uh, to do something new, to cue a new sequence, listen them out. That's, and then one day, if you practice, that's the fifth step, practice at every naturally occurring opportunity, you're going to find you do it uh, the new way without even thinking about it, which means that the circuitry in the brain for doing it is now stronger than the old circuitry. That's the whole path. And you've spoken about actively, consciously listening to someone so that you get better at it. And actually in doing something like that, your brain literally changes through neuroplasticity, right? Neuroplasticity is the underlying science here. Neuroplasticity is a new understanding in brain science that the brain changes throughout life and that we can change it systematically. When you practice a sport, you're strengthening the circuitry for that golf swing or for that tennis serve or for whatever it may be. And that's why you have to do it over and over and over again. Every time you do it, you're making that circuitry just a little stronger. And that's the secret of, uh, of growth and development in any area, whether it's sports or emotional intelligence. So when I've heard people I admire say, people don't really change, you know, actually, they're speaking gubbins. Well, what he's referring to is the fact that people usually aren't motivated to change. Remember, I said, do yeah, you care? Yeah, right. you know? <laughs> and so you could say it differently. You say most people most of the time don't care enough to put the effort to change. Okay, Daniel, so let's just sum it up and perhaps consider, you know, whether you think emotionally intelligent athletes are likely to be more successful. Considering everything we've said, 
What's your take on it? I would say all other things being equal, that is equal training, equal expertise, ability, the difference is it's a mental game. It's an emotional game, ultimately. At the highest levels, everybody says that. You know, everyone's as good as you are in terms of, uh, you know, the specifics of what the sport is. The difference is your internal state. If you can manage your upsets, if you can stay calm, if you can stay clear, if you can stay connected to your teammates, you're going to be better. And just bringing emotional intelligence and sports together again, something that I see and something I've experienced and noticed in others as well is actually by taking part in sport, particularly as you're growing up, team sports, other sports, it's a way to develop emotional intelligence. You have to learn how to to some degree, regulate your emotions. You have to learn to cooperate with others, to empathize with others, to read others' emotions, those kind of things. So sport really can be an excellent tool to develop emotional intelligence in and of itself. Well, it is. And I'm glad you point that out because we found this too, that people who uh, are active in sports in school, in their school years, learn a lot of the basics of emotional intelligence because you have to to be a good player, to be a good team player. You have to know how to tune into other people. You have to know how to manage yourself. And so I, I would say that in learning a sport, people are also learning emotional intelligence, and that's going to help them everywhere else in life. Well, Daniel, I think that's about it from us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Like I said, I've been a long-time fan of your work. Uh, over a decade ago since I was uh, pointed in the direction of emotional intelligence. You've lived up to expectations and surpassed it. So just thank you so much for um, being on Don't Tell Me The Score. And if there's anything else that uh, we've missed that you want to quickly add, now's the time. Simon, I think you've capped it all very well. Daniel, you're a star. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Simon. You've been most kind. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Turn With The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.